The great thing about here in Hawaii is that I can take an MDM-1 Fox and take one launch to a thousand feet and I can do aerobatics for six hours because I can just soar up to 3,000 feet, go up over the ocean, do my full uh, advanced uh, world sequence and um, just go back up again and keep doing it. Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Hello, my name is Chuck. I am your host, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 64. A big thank you for joining us today. I greatly appreciate that. And a big thank you to our Patreon pilots, Ryan Trudeau, Mitchell Thompson, Brett Ross. If you like to be a Patreon supporter and help us here at Soaring the Sky, check it out at patreon.com slash soaring the sky. This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in the high desert of Los Angeles County. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its 8th grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD-afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year-round to the general public, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. Today our guest pilot joins us from Hawaii, James Elagio. He has been a glider pilot since the age of 13 from Somerset Airport, New Jersey. Over his two decades of flying, he has served as an experimental aircraft test pilot, chief pilot, helicopter pilot instructor, and corporate pilot, now currently flying an Airbus A380 around the world for Hawaiian Airlines. He is an active CFIG and is a proud member of the United States Glider Aerobatics Team. Please join us now as we hear James's story on Soaring the Sky. James Elagio, welcome to Soaring the Sky. So happy to have you, you here today. How are you? I'm happy to be here. I'm wonderful, thank you. Another beautiful Hawaiian morning. Uh, I'm jealous. You know, we have flurries right now, and it's about 40 degrees. Oh, <laughs> and in May, and it's very good. Yeah. What glider port are you flying out of? I'm flying out of Dillingham Airfield on the north shore of Oahu in Hawaii. The airport here, actually, the original glider port on Oahu was called the John Galtz Glider Port. It was opened in 1931, and uh, they did some world records out there for duration. Uh, the first uh, world record duration flight here was over 21 hours of flight time, uh, powered by our prevailing trade winds. Um, one of the beautiful things about the glider port here is that uh, we have over 300 soaring days a year. Sometimes we'll have over 330 soaring days a year. It's extremely consistent. Uh, the glider port um, that we currently fly out of at Dillingham Airfield it was opened in um, around World War II. And it was used as a base for B-24 bombers, but it also served as uh, landing and training fields for uh, P-51s, P-40s, uh, P-47s. Uh, there were even some P-61 Black Widows here towards the end of the war. So um, they have a nice long runway. It's a 9,000-foot paved asphalt strip in very good condition and has a 500-foot overrun on each side. So um, the great thing is it's a class Gulf airport with no control tower. We pretty much have what feels like a private airport to ourselves. However, it is open to the public. Oh, lots of opportunity there. Wow. Absolutely. So can you tell me about the soaring conditions and how that is? So 
We have um, a wonderful weathered pattern here. Again, we're about 21 degrees north of the equator, and that allows us to have uh, prevailing trade winds from the east to northeast. And because we have our beautiful mountain range and directly next to the 9,000-foot runway, which we operate out of, we have a beautiful ridge right there that's uh, over 1,000 feet high. So we just need a quick arrow tow to 800 feet or a quick winch launch to usually the winch gets us over 1200 1300 feet at least and then we can do that at sunrise and land at sunset almost every day of the year so i'm in the wrong location it is one of the most consistent (laughs) soaring um, places on earth the primary lift is the ridge lift however every day we get phenomenal thermals yesterday i was climbing and thermals uh, that were six to eight knots up to about 4,200 feet. I did 11 flights yesterday. So um, oh, just wow. tra- training um, kids and I'm volunteering my time during the pandemic to to help out anyone that uh, is a Hawaiian pilot or Hawaiian kids. Uh, since I'm also a Hawaiian pilot, I fly uh, there for a living. So we've got uh, very good uh, thermic conditions, uh, obviously consistent every day. The convergence conditions are second to none. It is spectacular. When we get this micro meteorologic convergence condition, these tiny clouds form and you can visualize the lift. It is, there's nothing like it. It turns into a three-dimensional cathedral of clouds. And because we're within 1,200 feet of the surface, we're still operating in class golf, you just need to remain clear of clouds. So as long as we remain clear of clouds, we can explore that cathedral and it's just it's one of the most majestic things i've ever experienced in my life um now on top of that um we typically we've got the trade winds coming from the uh, east northeast and um above say about six or seven thousand feet the winds typically come from the west so there there's a shear which means that um, we don't really have any thunderstorms here in hawaii it maybe only happens once a year, twice a year, that we actually get thunderstorms, unlike a place like Samoa, where they have 50,000-foot thunderstorms almost all the time, almost every day. So the cool thing is is that it's just almost perfect weather all the time. But when those winds align, and they align all the way from the surface, all the way up to altitude, and they increase in speed, it becomes optimal wave conditions. And I experienced that a few days ago where I took my uh, – Shemperth discus up to uh, 19,000 feet. And the cool thing about Hawaii is there's no class alpha airspace. So in Hawaii and Alaska, there's no class alpha. So I was in touch with uh, our Honolulu control frequency to, uh, you know, get up to the altitude and make sure that there are no airliners being vectored my way. But um, yeah, it was an easy climb up to uh, 19,000 feet. It was about uh, four to six knots from 11,000 to 19,000. And then um, I went the top of the wave at that moment was probably just over 19. But uh, I was pretty happy with that altitude. It was a beautiful day. Yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah, I'm going to add uh, add your location to my uh, bucket list for sure. Oh, please do. We'd love to have you. It's uh, it's actually been one of the um, it, I would guess that it's actually been the most popular glider port on Earth. Uh, they've been giving commercial rides here over 300 days a year for the past 45 years. Amazing. And so, I can understand why. Yeah, it's spectacular. For the uh, the opportunity here is is amazing. Uh, there's three glider operators here uh, at Dillingham. 
Uh, you've got Mr. Bills, which is known as Honolulu Soaring. He's been the primary commercial operator, and he's the one that has organized all of these rides, um, which is just spectacular to, to have it last that long. But he's nearing retirement. And then you've got Stephen Susie's, which is Acro Flight International, and they've been doing rides, and he really specializes in instruction. He's a phenomenal instructor, but he's also re- approaching retirement. And then you've got um, Brian and Yukos, which is uh, the Hawaii Glider and Sailplane Academy. Um, they're currently operating. That's, that's who we're flying with now. Um, but also they're retired. He's a retired American Airlines captain, and she's an examiner for gliding. So we're, we're running towards a couple of, of um, crises and opportunities where these glider ports are nearing close because of the individual's you know, retirement age and their focus towards their next phase of life. So what we're trying to do is educate the next generation. And we're also trying to get the word out that this is the most amazing glider port for our community. Not only you know, for our local community, we're talking about global community and the gliding experience because we can take someone and we can consistently train. We can just go for a quick winch launch and we can make the lesson as long as we want. We can make the lesson 20 minutes, 30 minutes, two hours, five hours, whatever we need to do. And we can we can use every type of lift there is in gliding um, just from this one little spot. So it's such an opportunity where we can create, you know, if we all come together and create a soaring center, um, this could be one of the greatest opportunities that we've seen in our sport. And unfortunately, they, they haven't. Um, they haven't created that yet. It doesn't mean that it's not possible, but we have such a wonderful influx of tourism here that, uh, of course, not during the, the current time because of the pandemic, but the standard influx of tourism means that we don't ever have gliders sitting on the ground when the gates are open. They're constantly flying all day long. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a really neat place. And I really hope everyone can come wow. out here and, and check it out. Like I said, I'm definitely going to be checking that out, hopefully sooner rather than later. I hope so. I'd love to take you flying. It's spectacular. Yesterday, I was up with a young lady. She's uh, 16 years old. She's a daughter of one of our Hawaiian pilots. Uh, she came up, and she had, she had a little bit of fear the first flight, but that was her second yesterday, and she did very, very well. So, And then at, towards the end of our lesson, we decided to fly in formation with another one of our instructors in an ASK-21. And uh, while we're flying a formation, I saw an Eva bird, which is a uh, great frigate bird um, that passed us the other way. So I did a quick wing over and joined up on the wing of the frigate bird. And we flew in formation for about 30 seconds before the, uh, the Eva bird even knew we were there. So it was just spectacular. Being able to soar with the birds here is, is one of the best experiences I've ever had in life. Oh, beautiful. Okay, so my next question is, how did you end up there? Where did your aviation adventure begin? So uh, I grew up in New Jersey. Um, I always wanted to fly. Whenever you look up in New Jersey, there's something flying. So I'm not sure if that's what planted the seed. Or uh, My uncle was super kind to me. He, uh, he took me to some air shows when I was a kid, and he knew that I, I had that bug. So I started playing with little simulators when I was a kid and starting to read books a little bit. Um, and then when I was nine, my uncle surprised me on my birthday, and he, uh, he bought me a flight lesson. And after that, I just I knew that was it. Um, so I started kind of working at the airport and you know, cleaning airplanes, sweeping hangar floors, just trying to to get somewhere, uh, you know, get some flight lessons. And 
Um, you know, I, my dad left when I was a little kid. My mom, unfortunately, had some other personal issues. Cause, so I kind of just kind of found a home at the airport and uh, worked and worked until I turned 13. And the owner of uh, Gliderport out in New Jersey, his name is Bob Haltaway, and he owned a little Gliderport called Fly for Fun out of uh, Somerset Airport, Kilo Sierra Mike Quebec. He offered me a, an opportunity to work from early in the morning to late at night, seven days a week during the summer and on the weekends during the school year. And basically, I'd be the ground kid, you know, running all the gliders, helping the customers, doing some customer service stuff. And I was too young for him to pay me. So he offered me a flight lesson every day that I worked, which was perfect because I didn't really want money. I just wanted to fly so that it worked out great. Um, and then when I turned 14, well, I started soloing gliders. So I couldn't get a flight lesson. So he would just offer me either a 3000 foot tow or two 1500 foot toes. So I always, you know, pocketed one 1500 foot tow. And then at the end of the day, I'd you know, spend one 1500 foot toe and I'd take the Schweizer 222 up, the 1946 bird, and I would fly on every single bug fart that I can find to stay up until sunset. So it was a uh, pretty spectacular uh, moment in my life. Um, and I basically lived in the back of a hangar that was built in 1929. It was the original Aero Club Albatross hangar uh, that was on a hill. And uh, legend has it that they used to pull the gliders up to the top of the hill with, uh, with donkeys. And then they would put the glider in that hangar. And then when they wanted to launch, they would literally just pull it out of the hangar. And they would either push it off the hill or do a, uh, a rubber band launch, uh, the bungee launch. And then they just pull it back up and reset it for the next time. So they brought that hangar down to the airport when they built the airport. And they had a little room in the back with a little couch. So that was my home from when I was about 13 to 17 years old. That's basically where I lived. And I just worked every, every day I could. From there, I, I, I became uh, really interested in racing. I had some mentors, uh, Peter Krosnoff, who had a LS6. Uh, he really kind of helped me out with learning how to be efficient in the sky and a racing mindset. And then Ron Schwartz, who's a superman out of Blairstown. Uh, he was also another one of my mentors. Uh, he's done... I believe, 1,000 K in a 126 off the Appalachian Ridge. I mean, this guy is spectacular. I love, love those guys. Uh, he also had an ASW 20. So um, learned from those guys. I was very lucky to go up to Elmira, and uh, I had a, a wonderful soaring education by the U.S. team up there during a juniors event. And then when I turned 19, they said, okay, you can go race. You know, We're ready to get you ready for the U.S. team. You just need your own $150,000 glider. And I was just like, oh, no, I'm, I never had any money to do something like that. So unfortunately, I had to kind of put my, my dream of soaring on the back burner for a bit and then just focus on career stuff. So uh, I was already a commercial pilot in airplanes when I was 18. So I started banner towing and became a chief pilot of a banner towing operation, flying L-19 bird dogs. Uh, and I also started my own home-built experimental flight testing business because I just got tired of seeing all these beautiful airplanes that were just made. And unfortunately, the owners typically would break, damage, crash, or maybe even have a fatal accident in the aircraft on their first flight because they had built the aircraft, perhaps a high-performance aircraft, but they haven't flown in a very long time because of that. So I told them, hey, you know, let's let me help you with your first flight. And then if 
you know, if you want me to continue, I can teach you how to fly your own airplane safely. And during that time when I'm, I'm operating the aircraft, I can make sure I can fly off the time. We can work out any of the bugs and, and improve it. And that ended up being my first few years of life. And I went to school originally for engineering, did the flight testing, did the banner towing. I always wanted to, like, I love aviating. I love being a stick and rudder pilot. I love aerobatics. I love all these things. So I just want to really revolve my life around that. And one of my biggest dreams when I was a kid was to, to fly in Hawaii because I knew it was just the optimal place for unlimited energy. Uh, there's so much wind out here that's so perfect for ridge lift and the thermals and everything. And then, of course, um, Hawaiian Airlines always inspired me. I always wanted to fly there because they started with uh, flying boats back in 1929. So, um, yeah, I just worked my way up and then eventually had a business with kids after school, uh, teaching them how to build little model airplanes after school and ended up being a big company. Actually, we had 75 employees after a while. Moved on from that, went back to school, got a business degree and uh, applied science and technology degree. And then um, started flying corporate helicopters and corporate airplanes out of New York City. And then um, I realized that it was a wonderful job, but it was a retirement job. And if I wanted to move on to, to bigger things, I would have to leave and uh, pay my dues. So I, I actually um, I quit that job and I started working for Great Lakes Airlines flying Beach 1900s. Became a uh, first officer there for a year and then a captain for a year. Flew about 2,000 hours in those two years and then became the uh, first pilot and captain at a new airline in Hawaii called Ohana by Hawaiian. And they're flying that 48-seat ATR 42-500s. So uh, I flew there and they found out that I had quite a few thousand hours of high-performance tail dragger time. So Hawaiian Airlines offered me the opportunity to interview for a position as the Hawaiian Airlines Heritage Pilot flying their original airplane from 1929, which is a Belanca CH300 pacemaker. Once I went through the interview process, they realized that for me it was just like another airplane because that's how I grew up flying airplanes like that. I started flying their, their original airplane, which they found, which started their airline. That was spectacular. I've flown over 500 tours in that airplane. And I guess through... Um, through some time and they got to know me. I was uh, given the opportunity to interview for a job at Hawaiian Airlines, which was one of my greatest dreams. And I got it. And they gave me the, the Boeing 767-300ER as my first airplane. So I, I flew that for, uh, oh, I want to say, close to four years. And then retired that airplane. And now I'm flying the Airbus A33200. So it's uh, really a spectacular thing. So that's kind of how I, I got to Hawaii and how I'm kind of creating this foundation so now I can really pursue those, those big dreams I've had since I was a kid. We'll be right back with our guest, but right now our Soaring Safety segment with the previous guest, Mary Russ, from episode 25. Stay humble. Don't think you're better than you are, because when you think you're better than you are, you're looking for trouble. You're going to have a problem, and it could be deadly. The other thing is that people get to a certain level and they think that they're going to stay at that level, but they don't continue to study. They don't continue to strive for a higher rating. They are actually backsliding. They don't know it, but they really get nervous when it's time for a BFR because they don't remember anything because they haven't been studying. They haven't been doing anything. If you're constantly studying and trying to learn something new, 
you'll be fine. You need to keep growing. Thank you, Mary. If you'd like to sponsor our Soaring Safety segment, you can do that. Just get in touch with me, Chuck at SoaringTheSky.com. And now back to this week's guest. Now you're part of the U.S. glider aerobatic team, is that correct? That's right. Yeah, so um, one of the great things about the, the airline jobs, I never really wanted to push a button and let autopilots fly you know, my flight. I'm a stick and rudder guy. I wasn't really sure about the job, you know, and then I finally did it, and I'm like, wow, this is actually a great opportunity to, to study when I'm abroad. And also, when I land somewhere, I usually have a day off. So what I did is I always decided to go to the, the places where I can train. So one of the destinations that I chose was Sacramento in that case back in uh, 2016, 2017. And what I did is every single day that I had a layover, I went over to Williams Soaring Center and trained with uh, my very good friend, uh, Eric Lenskunt there. We trained for uh, the world championships in Poland, which uh, I attended in 2017. We took the U.S. Uh, aerobatic team. We did quite well. It was uh, a wonderful event. I'm very pleased to have been part of that. So yeah, we continue to train and I do a lot of training in uh, powered aerobatic aircraft as well, typically a Yak-55. So that's uh, that's usually what I'm flying for aerobatics at this point. And also we have an MDM-1 Fox here in Hawaii. So I use the, uh, the Fox here to do a lot of aerobatic training. And one of the cool things is that, you know, the Fox is not the optimal soaring machine. However, in Hawaii, I've had five, six-hour flights with the, the Fox doing nonstop aerobatics. So I was able to get wow. my G-tolerance up uh, because we, we have to use basically the full plus nine, negative seven G limit um, for world championships because we have to be ready for, for any types of maneuvers. So the great thing about here in Hawaii is that I can take an MDM-1 Fox and take one launch to 1,000 feet. And I can do aerobatics for six hours because I can just soar up to 3,000 feet, go up over the ocean. We have an aerobatic box right next to our airport and then do my full uh, advanced uh, world sequence and um, just go back up again and keep doing it. So it's, uh, it's a wonderful amazing. environment. Yeah, I get more training in one flight than most people typically do in one season. Right. Yeah, it's pretty spectacular. And we don't have to worry about running out of gas. Yeah, <laughs> we've always got the uh, the winds that bring us back up. Wow, that is that is amazing. What is one of your most memorable flights you've had in a glider? Wow, that's a great question. I mean, obviously, last week was pretty special. Uh, that was my first time entering a uh, big wave in Hawaii. Uh, you know, they do big wave surfing on the North Shore, but the big wave here gets up to uh, the record altitude is thirty eight thousand seven hundred feet. So. That was certainly pretty special. Um, I have a lot of special flights. Uh, one was down in New Zealand a couple of years ago. I took my best friend uh, down to New Zealand, and we uh, we took a duo discus from uh, Omerima down on the South Island. And we uh, it wasn't it unfortunately it didn't look like it was going to be a great day, but there was a slight slight chance that we can maybe find a little bit of wave. And that slight chance turned into one of the most spectacular soaring days I had ever seen. Uh, it was very challenging to get into the wave, very small thermals, and we had to, to work them pretty hard. But um, I entered a hydraulic jump, and from that hydraulic jump, I got into the wave, and I, I made it all the way from Omerima up to Mount Cook. And when I got to Mount Cook, I descended down to the face of Mount Cook, and I ridge-soared 
the, the face of the tallest mountain in that entire region, which was one of the most spectacular experiences I've ever had. Nice. Yeah. And then I turned around and soared back to Omerima without even turning. <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool. <laughs> that is crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so do you do a lot of winch tow as well as arrow tow? Or we do. We do all three types of towing here at uh, Dillingham. Uh, our primary source of launching for instruction is winch towing. We have a winch made by uh, a gentleman, uh, Roman, not sure what Roman's last name is off the top of my head. Actually, it's a Polish last name, but he's out of Southern California. He makes this phenomenal witch. I've been all over the world. I've soared in Japan. I've soared in you know, the Southern Hemisphere. I've soared all over. Um, and I've never seen a winch that is built with this quality and is that compact. It's not a very big winch, and it does a wonderful job. And his... He builds the machine that builds the machine. That's how good this guy is. So we have one of those here, and we use that pretty much constantly all day long. We probably did about no half day yesterday, maybe about 30 flights without really pushing it. Um, and, I mean, the price is so cheap because of just the winch launches. very, very affordable. So we do winch launches for training, uh, and we do also arrow tow for training. And arrow tow seems to be the primary way over the past 40 years that they've uh, used for uh, commercial rides. So that's a pretty standard thing. We have L19 bird dogs that are towing here. And then of course we have motor gliders. There's uh, a couple of Grobe 109s and uh, a Lombada and uh, one of the new Phoenixes. So motor gliding is quite popular as well. But they only need that for launch, obviously. Yeah, exactly. Once you, you, <laughs> once you take off, and again, it's nice to have a 9,000 foot runway. So if you have any issues, uh, if you can't make that, you probably shouldn't be flying an airplane. So it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite, um, the safety margin is tremendous. So that's the wonderful thing about this operation is that with a 9,000 foot runway and also you can land on the North side, which is all grass. And then of course we have 500 foot overruns on each side. It's, it's one of the best places on earth to learn how to fly and do it safely. So a motor glider, yeah, you can take off probably climb up to about 300 feet straight ahead. And then as you make a right wide turn, um, you can probably make about 400 feet. And that's when you contact the ridge lift and that'll take you up to about 800 feet. That's when I would shut down about 800 feet and then uh, you can soar up all day. So you could do that at sunrise and then land at sunset uh, pretty much most days of the year. Do you have any scary toes maybe? Toes? Um... Winch launches. No. So winch launches, the good thing about how we operate the winch here is that we're in communication with them over the phone. And if the phone fails, we have the radio as well. So we have a backup. So we're constantly in communication with the winch operator. Uh, it makes it a, a pretty fail-safe operation. So winch launches typically aren't very scary. They're very exciting if you haven't experienced one before because the acceleration is, is quite phenomenal. And, of course, you go from being on the ground in Hawaii to almost instantly being over the ocean and the mountains and watching the whales and you're with the birds. It's just, it's a wonderful experience. So, um, no, I haven't had any winch launches. I've had a couple of bumpy toes um, just flying through rotor, but, you know, nothing that we can't handle. And motor gliding, I haven't had any big engine failures. So I, I've been quite lucky with, um, you know, if, if you use proper procedures and give yourself margins, you know, what could turn into a bad situation you know, you should be able to to correct rapidly with good training. Yes, absolutely. What has been maybe one of the strangest or coolest things you've seen from the cockpit? 
Well, I've got a lot of cockpit stories because I fly uh, most categories of aircraft. So, uh, but in gliding in particular, um, there's one time when I was a little boy. I was 14 years old, and I was soloing that Schweizer 222, and I was I was getting really good at flying those really light thermals towards the end of the day because uh, I would pocket that 1,500-foot toe, and I would use this one, and I would just try to stay up as long as I can from 1,500 feet in New Jersey. Um, and I got so good at working these little, what I call, bug fart thermals that I, I was like, well, I got a little bit confident. So I started going a little bit further away and then coming back, and I was like, oh, this is good. And then I'd go a little far away, and then I'd come back, and I started getting you know, pretty confident. And for a 14-year-old, you know, got to you know, sometime watch the uh, – watch the overconfidence. And unfortunately this one night, uh, and I call it night cause it's towards the evening. The sun is starting to descend. Uh, I got too confident and, uh, I turned around towards my home airport there in New Jersey. And I realized, well, I don't, I don't think I'm going to make it home this time. <laughs> so, oh, no. um, yeah, I looked down and there was a field and, you know, my lack of maturity and very, very, um, limited training at that point, because I was just a solo student, I was like, I think I might be doing an outlanding, but I didn't really pick any really good fields, and now I'm getting low, <laughs> so down at a thousand <laughs> feet, and a Schweizer, an air that's yeah. not going up. You know, this is um, it's not a great situation. But I had some fields, and I looked down at the one field in particular that I was probably going to land in, and I realized that the surface condition was not very good. It had some rocks in it. It had some old tree stumps and long grass and who knows what's in the long grass. So I realized that I had made a bad decision. So I got lower and lower and uh, I'm trying to delay the inevitable, but um, I realized that at some point I'm going to have to start my landing pattern and land in this field. So I'm about to start to, uh, to make my crosswind and downwind uh, a little bit lower than I should have been. And at that moment, I looked down and this bird launched out of the trees, this big bird, big wings. And he started circling over the field. So just, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was just my, maybe I was being optimistic. Maybe it was my survival instinct. I'm not sure why, but I just matched the circle of the bird. And then I realized that the bird was getting closer to me. The bird was getting bigger relative to me. And then I looked at my vertical speed, my vario, and it said zero. I was holding my altitude. So I just kept doing exactly what the bird was doing. And the bird kept getting closer and closer and closer. And then the bird joined off of my left wing. And because I was flying such a slow glider at the minimum weight, you know, this old Schweizer 222, we soared at the same speed. And he was on my wing like he was tied to it. And I looked at my vertical speed and we started climbing two to 300 feet a minute average. And um, we took that from my low altitude of uh, lower than it should have been all the way up to 3,200 feet up to the last cumulus puffy cloud of the day. And he never left my wing. Wow. Beautiful. Yeah. And then it's funny because you know, I looked at him and you know, I'm thinking, wow, this is the most majestic creature. It was a red tail hawk. Um, ah. and I'm just thinking it was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. And then I saw him looking at my cockpit, and then all of a sudden it dawned on me that he's thinking, God, that's the ugliest, stupidest bird I've ever seen. 
<laughs> so it was a pretty magical experience. So ever since I had a pretty close connection with uh, learning from the birds and trying to emulate them to really understand the sky. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure uh, what, what he did when he launched from that tree, he actually touched the bubble of warm air uh, and dislodged the viscosity. So it actually launched one of the last thermals of the day. And wow. whether that was intentional or not, I'm not sure. But either way, it definitely saved me from a bad situation. Yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah. Do you have any advice on how to be a better and safer pilot? Absolutely. Absolutely. First of all, seek great instruction. You know, we can all just go get a rating somewhere. And then you can say on your pilot's license, oh, look, you know, I, I passed a, a check ride and now I'm a glider pilot. That's that's not how you become a much safer pilot. You know, when you take a check ride and you pass a written, you have passed the minimum knowledge requirement for that rating. That's not how to understand the wonderful, beautiful art form of what we do. And the best way to do that is to seek advanced instruction. So get to know people that aren't there just to get flight time. Get to know people that do it because they absolutely love it. Um, a gentleman in particular, um, probably in the recent five years or so, Kempton Izuno was kind enough to take me on some wave soaring flights in his ASH-25. It's a 62 to 1 glide ratio glider out of Williams Soaring Center in California. Uh, and we just did a phenomenal 500 kilometer flight from Williams Soaring Center up to Oregon and back in almost clear wave. And it was so spectacular for me to experience that because, you know, that was out of my realm of what's normal for my type of flying. But now it helped me visualize how to contact the wave, how to translate what it looks like and how to use it. And um, it makes soaring flights like uh, my time in New Zealand and also the time, you know, as recent as just a few days ago here in Hawaii when I'm contacting wave, which is relatively invisible. It's not like we have it well marked by lenticular clouds. So we're looking at phone gaps on the ground. Uh, we're trying to visualize the wind. Uh, it really helps to have a moving map because then you can note your position on the ground. But, um, you know, these are, are lessons that I, I've been lucky enough to learn throughout my entire flying career where people were, were kind enough to be like, hey, let me let me take you on this adventure and help you become a better pilot. And one of the things I noticed going to the uh, soaring convention uh, not too long ago out in Reno, Nevada, uh, I noticed that the average age of those who were attending is um, it, it were quite towards the, the older ages, which is not a problem for what we do. You know, when I get that to that age, I hope that I'm still soaring. But I think one of the big issues that we have in our sport is we haven't invested enough in the young generation to carry on our art form. And I noticed that when I turned 19 years old, all of a sudden I'm ready for world competition, cross-country competition, and I, I couldn't even afford a glider. I had no money. So I had to give up my most wonderful passion for almost a decade because there I was prime, ready to be a cross-country racing pilot, work my way up to the U.S. team, and really, you know, do what I love. You know, George Moffat, he was my my mentor. He was my, my hero. I wanted to be like him and Carl Stredek, you know, people like that. And all of a sudden, because I couldn't figure out how to get a flying machine, I had to give up my greatest passion. So there, here I am years later, I'm soaring again, I'm teaching again, aerobatic team, I do cross-country racing, 
all of these different forms of our our art. And I realized that the majority of people in our sport are towards their older retired age. And and again, that's okay because I want to be like them when I get to their age. But the problem with that is if we don't educate the next generation, the art form dies. And absolutely. We are not educating enough kids. And again, kids will have to worry about the careers. They're going to have to get their lives in order. But those are the ones that will keep this going. They're the ones that are going to keep our sport growing. They're the ones that are going to make the art more refined. And I think that's a, a major issue that we have here is we need to educate the younger generation. And I really would love to see more of those who fly for fun, who maybe are retired, maybe somehow spend a little bit more time mentoring a kid or kids plural. Um, it'd be really nice to, to see that because there's so much experience out there and it's really sad when it disappears. Uh, one of the things yeah. that really inspired me when I was uh, traveling out to Japan to Hokkaido, I was uh, lucky enough to fly with Yuji Higuchi, who's the director of the Japanese Soaring Association. And we flew out of Takikawa on the island of Hokkaido in northern Japan. So we're flying an ASK-21 up there. And he showed me their beautiful, what they call an aviation museum. But really what it is, it's their gliding club. So they, they tow out their little control tower every morning. And, um, you know, a couple of us Hawaiian pilots had showed up and they did just a wonderful ceremony to welcome us. And uh, they were tremendously kind and focused. And you could just see there's so much passion in what they did. But the one thing that inspired me so much was not only did they invest in teaching the young people and give them an opportunity to work at their glider field and work their way up. But when the members, um, when they passed away, the gliders were donated to their nonprofit organization and became part of their club. So when they opened their hangar doors, it is one of the most inspiring sights I've ever seen. There are 50 plus amazing gliders. You're talking about everything from antique gliders from the 1940s that are in pristine condition to brand new racing gliders. And everyone that's in the club that has been checked out and has received training, they can fly the gliders. They've invested in the future. It is just one of the most inspiring sights I've seen in soaring. That is an amazing idea. That's, that is great that they do that. Mm -hmm. What a way to build it. Oh, it certainly is. Yeah, it just keeps growing. It's, uh, it's a wonderful thing. And, you know, they have just this wonderful building. Uh, it's a two-story hangar, and each one is completely filled with these perfect aircraft and they have an entire library and i'm pretty sure i didn't find a publication in there uh that i haven't dreamt of reading since i was a kid and it's just spectacular it's um their library i think is probably one of the best soaring libraries I've ever seen in the world so any member can go in there and just, just read about it and uh it's pretty inspiring james always asked everyone if you could give a shout out to somebody that's been influential in your flying, someone you'd like to say hey to, thank them, I'd try to give you the opportunity to do that. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Well, the, again, there's so many people that helped inspire me along the way and encourage me and help educate me along the way. Uh, one of the, the most influential was uh, Herb Kushner. There was already another Herb back at our glider field, Fly for Fun in New Jersey. So everyone's like, well, we can't call you Herb. What do we call you? And he's like, I don't know. Just call me Gus. So we called him Gus since I was a little kid. And again, I didn't really have a dad, but he, he became 
just like my dad. He never charged me for a flight lesson. Um, and he always was there for me. Uh, he, he taught me how to soar. He was a glider CFIG. And then uh, towards the end of the day, you know, I'd work from sunrise to sunset in most cases during the summer when I was a little kid. And then he'd say, hey, James, you want to go fly my Cetabria? I'm like, yeah, I want to fly your Cetabria. So we'd go up at sunset. We'd, he'd teach me how to loop and roll and everything. So he taught me aerobatics when I was probably about 15 years old. And then we'd, we'd wait till the sunset. We'd just watch the sunset. And we'd power it back, you know, pull the mixture back a little bit, get it to our minimum fuel burn. And we would just stay up until the rotating beacon on the airport lights up. And then we would find the magic air that, you know, once a, a hill um, is in the heat all day long, you know, that mountain is warmer than maybe the forest surrounding it, which would give us, theoretically, a thermal. And in paragliding, we call that magic air, where it's smooth and laminar, but everything in that general vicinity is just going up. So we would find that magic air and just basically soar the Cetabri on it at minimum power so that we can save fuel and we can stay up as long as possible. Gus was a pretty magical guy, and he's still alive right now, so I try to spoil him as much as possible. But... Um, He's a wonderful human being. Very lucky to have him in my life. Oh, some great memories, I'm sure. James, do you have anything on social media you want to share? I know you oh, have some amazing uh, pictures, I'm sure. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes, um, I do have um, some social media stuff if you want to see pictures of what I do. Um, for the soaring in particular, uh, we have a site uh, on uh, Instagram. It's called Soar Hawaii, and the handle is at Soar, S-O-A-R underscore Hawaii. That's the best one where you can see pictures of what we do on a pretty daily basis. We'll put something up there so you can see uh, the operations. And then, of course, if you search my name at James Alagio on Instagram, that's probably the best way to see pictures of my um, aerobatics uh, powered end glider, uh, my glider cross countries, altitude stuff. Um, and then, of course, my helicopter, seaplane, airline, uh, all these other types of adventures that that I embark on. Great. I will look forward to sharing those. Thank you. James, thank you so much for joining me today. You, you uh, have a, my pleasure. An amazing story. I enjoyed that. And I know everyone else does too. It's my pleasure. And again, you know, it's one of the greatest things that I, I have the opportunity to do right now is to give back. And I think for people that have this experience who have really not only practiced the art and really tried to understand and master the art of soaring, I'm, I'm trying to inspire other people to give back as well because it's an art form and we're not going to last forever but the art form can and in order for that to happen we need to educate the next generation so i spend a lot of time on my days off to volunteer to help um, kids of all ages you know it doesn't matter if you're young or old but if they have that desire to want to soar like the birds i think it's very important for us to at least plant that seed and and help give them a good foundation so that they can be safe and and perhaps not only learn the art, but maybe even advance it. Absolutely. You know, at my club, we have some older gentlemen and our club, you know, is not is not getting any younger, but trying to do what we can maybe to bring some young people in. But I had a I had a chance to be in Southern California here back in March before everything got crazy. And I had a chance to experience the STEM program with the oh, Soaring great. Academy. Mm -hmm. And it, it was it was amazing to experience the excitement when they landed. And it's just one of those things where a picture says a thousand words, but get them get them in the air and let them experience it. And the bug hits them and we'd have no problem keeping this thing going. 
Certainly. I agree with that. Thanks, James. Have a good one. I appreciate Uh, it. My pleasure, Chuck. Thank you again for having me, and thanks for all that you're doing. Absolutely. I enjoy doing it. And thank you for listening to another great guest here on Soaring the Sky. Some of you have gotten in touch with me on social media. If you'd like to do that, Michelle will have all that info for you next. I see a lot of clubs are opening up and getting back in the air. Hopefully you're part of one of those clubs. If not, I hope you get in the air soon, as well as myself. I'm very much looking forward to getting back in the air. So have a great week. Stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi, just drop Chuck a line at chuck at soaringthesky.com. Or you can send us a note on the website, soaringthesky.com. Also, if you're a pilot, we want to hear your story. Just send us an email and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next week for another great guest and adventure on Soaring the Sky. Music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Voiceover work was provided by Michelle Perez. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton.